The Paul Leslie Hour, helping people tell their stories. And now, your host, Paul Leslie. Hey, it's me. How are you, friend? Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Paul Leslie Hour. I have to admit, this episode is somber in nature. Nonetheless, I hope you all enjoy listening to this as a kind of celebration to a very talented artist. Eddie Davis has passed away. Eddie Davis was a man that I interviewed back in December 2008. Might have been January 2009. This is the only time I got to interview him, and I really wish I had had a chance to speak to him again. Commonly known as the Manhattan Minstrel, he gave this very detailed interview about his outlook as a very celebrated and talented banjo player. Eddie Davis was also a songwriter, a recording artist, and a performer. I had the great pleasure and honor of seeing him perform with Connell Fawkes, Woody Allen, and the rest of his New Orleans jazz band. It was a great pleasure, a thrill to meet all of those wonderful musicians, and I'm looking forward to bringing more of those interviews out there and to the light of day. Eddie Davis made some incredible recordings of music, They might be hard to get a hold of, but if you get a chance, I really, I couldn't recommend them enough. Let me know what you think, and if you have any memories of Eddie Davis, if you knew him, I would love to hear about them. Let's get into the interview. Ladies and gentlemen, it is our pleasure to present an interview with the Manhattan Minstrel, inductee of the National Four-String Banjo Hall of Fame, musical director of the Eddie Davis New Orleans Jazz Band, the front man for the band Wild Reeds and Wicked Rhythm, the driving force behind New York Jazz Records, musician, singer, producer, and composer, the legendary Eddie Davis. Thank you so much for joining us today. My God, is that me? Sounds like I'm a very old man. (laughs) (laughs) I guess I am. (laughs) You've just returned from the tour in Europe. I was hoping you could tell the listeners a little bit about that experience. I've gone to Europe for a number of years now, so as a trip, it was... uh, it was fun because it being with the band, it's a good band, and and we stay in first class hotels and uh, should enjoy it a lot. I, I do enjoy the musical side of it a lot. The traveling, I'm not a big fan of anymore, but the musical side of it was terrific. I think most stories are best from the beginning, so I was hoping you could tell everyone out there where you were born. I was born in uh, 1940. Uh, actually, I was born at home. I wasn't born in the hospital. I didn't have a birth certificate until uh, 1973 when I first decided to go to Europe. I asked my mother for a birth certificate, and she said, you don't have one. You were born at home. And I said, well, that's great. I can't get a passport unless I have a birth certificate. So she had to go, and they had to make me have a birth certificate at that time. So, But I was born at home from a midwife in 1940 in a little bitty town just off the banks of the Wabash River in, in Indiana called Green Hill. Then shortly, about a year and a half after that, or a little less than that, we actually moved to right on the Wabash River. So I kind of grew up uh, on this uh, very, very large state of Purdue University. The university had a, a very large uh, a state that had been given to them by this wealthy fellow out there. It was called uh, Ross Camp. The, his name was Dave Ross, and we, my father was the caretaker of that property. 
I actually grew up uh, riding horses a lot, and because uh, that's what my folks were into, western horses, milking cows and all that sort of thing on the banks of the Wabash River just outside of Lafayette, Indiana. Can you remember what music you heard growing up? Yeah, my my folks had a, a 78 record machine. We had a, back at that time, there wasn't television around, and the telephone was one of those to hang on the wall, had on the wall. So we ha- Our number was two longs and short. We were on a party line uh, out there at the country and all that. And so the only thing you had would be a radio. We had a radio, and we had a 78 recording machine, a phonograph. So they had 78 records, and they had Jelly Roll Morton, which was very unusual, I guess, for a family there in Indiana. But they had these Jelly Roll Morton recordings of Hyena Stomp and Billy Goose Stomp and, and all this kind of stuff that uh, Jelly Roll Morton had recorded. And then they had a lot of recordings, 78 recordings, of uh, Mildred Bailey, who was a female singer for a... She had her own orchestra back at that time, and she did a lot of ballads and a lot of pop kind of tunes. And then they also had records of this country-type fellow, uh, Johnny Bond was his name. And I remember as a kid running around doing a little tune, or some of the early times I can remember, is running around singing a little song that he had sang called I Like My Chicken Frying Size. And so I ended up just kind of singing these songs that were off the 78 records back in those days. Can you remember a moment when you realized that you were going to be a musician? Well, it kind of came by accident. Everything in my life has kind of come by accident. I just kind of take things easy and let them go, I guess. I'm kind of lazy that way. But uh, in school, uh, back in those days, they used to bring musical instruments around to all the kids. And you could pick a musical instrument and try to play it or whatever and I remember uh, when I was in grade school, they brought around these instruments, and the little girls all seemed to be gravitating toward the kid that had the snare drum, had a drum, and he was hitting on it. So I kind of said, uh, it's true, I enjoyed the girls going over there, so I, I kind of said, well, let, give me one of those things. Let me hit on that, on that thing a while. So I started hitting on the drums, and after about six months, I said, there must be more to music than just beating on this drum. Now, I've always been a drummer. I've played drums for a lot of different groups. And here in uh, in New York City, the last group I really played drums for at any length was Vince Giordano, a fellow here that has had a, a, a large orchestra of the 1920s, 30s style for a long time. I played drums with him for a number of years when he first put a band together 40 years ago back here and all that. So uh, I've always been a drummer. But at that point, about six months in, beating on this drum, I said there must be something else, so they showed me a, an orchestra orchestra bells, which was a glockenspiel thing that you play in a marching band, the metal bells that you ring, and I played those for a while, and I didn't think that was great, so they sent me over to the first, uh, first class of the day, they had uh, a small symphony kind of thing, so they sent me over to that, and I started playing tippany drums, because I, was, I wanted to learn about pitches and tones, so I started playing the tippany, and then they had a band room and in there I used to pick up a lot of of the different instruments and just kind of figure out how they were played. That's kind of what I've done always on an instrument. I've kind of looked at it like, for example, I played trumpet for a while and it, I could tell that it was a bugle that had valves on it. So what you got really is a, is a chromatic bugle. You can play bugle calls in all 12 keys and uh, uh, chromatically up to the scale. And so I, I kind of figured that out and I figured out how the woodwinds work the 
saxophones and all that, and how the reeds made the air vibrate and the brass your lift made the air vibrate. I just kind of figured all those different things. And so uh, the band director used to let me just pick out an instrument and play it, whatever. If somebody was, was missing in the formation of the band, why he would say, why don't you play the trombone today or why don't you play the other? So I did that for a number of years and it was very easy. And then when I was 14 years old, they uh, said, you know, why don't you play for this little dance band, play for some dances and things. I started doing it. The next thing I knew, the union said, if you're going to play these jobs around here, you have to be a union musician. So at the age of 14, I joined the union. And, of course, you can't join a union until you're 16. And they didn't tell me that until I got there. So then they made a special compensation to put me in the union when I was 14. And from then on, I just kind of played music because it was easy. At that time in that band, I was playing tenor saxophone. It was a, what they call a tenor band. It was three tenor saxophones, a trumpet, and rhythm section. And, and I was playing the second tenor saxophone part on that. So I just kind of went from thing to thing. And then at Purdue University, they had a, a Dixieland band going there. So when I was in high school at the local high school across the river from Purdue University and Jefferson High School, uh, I uh, said, well, I'd like to play in that Dixieland band because they make more money. I was making $12 some change on a Saturday night for playing like Friday and Saturday for playing three hours. So I could play, make $50 to $150 a night playing with this Dixieland band and thought that sounded like a good idea. And they said, well, the banjo chair is available. You can play the banjo. And I said, well, what's a banjo look like? So uh, I went down to the music store, and they gave me a banjo, and I learned how to tune the thing and started playing it and went from job to job. And we used to play opposite the Kingston Trio and George Shearing's uh, Jazz Octet for freshmen, opposite all these comedians like Bob Newhart and Jonathan Winters and everybody like that. And it all seemed very fun and interesting. And so just that's where it went. And when I got out of high school, they said, I said, uh, well, what will I do? And they said, I went to Purdue for a while, for a year, studying forestry because that's where this Dixieland band was that I was playing with. And they said, well, why don't we start going to Chicago? We started playing in Chicago, and I learned there was a conservatory of music up there. So I started going to the Chicago Conservatory of Music, which I did until I was 26 years old, studying composition and all that. And I just kind of went from one thing to another, and music was always easy and fun, and here I am after all these years. And that's kind of the way to spend a life, I guess. Our interview is with Mr. Eddie Davis of the Eddie Davis New Orleans Jazz Band. Mr. Davis... What is it that you like about the banjo? Well, at first, I liked the banjo because it was uh, an instrument to have fun on, express yourself. And then about a year after I'd played the banjo, they took me in Chicago to hear a banjo player. Uh, there was supposed to be a well-known banjo player there. And I didn't like what he did at all. I hated it. Banjo basically has a lot of time been considered what they either consider a five-string instrument, but the four-string is the one I play, the four-string banjo, because that's the one that goes for the 1920s jazz, a tenor banjo is what I play. It was originally called a tango banjo because the tango banjos in New York back at the other turn of the century before this last one uh, used to use the, the, that 
tenor banjo, it was brand new at that time, and they used it as an instrument for the violin and viola players to have a double on, because that's why it was invented. It tunes like the viola, which is the larger violin, an octave above the cello. When they took me to see this banjo player, he was one of these four-string guys that they called virtuosos at the time, and they did all these fancy flourishing solo things, and, and it wasn't a thing on like how I like to just be like a minstrel and strum along and do whatever on the banjo, play and pick out little tunes. And, and I didn't like what he did at all. To this day, I'm not a fan of that kind of banjo playing at all. Banjo should be treated like a musical instrument, I've always said, like any musical instrument, saxophone or trumpet or anything else. You should be able to play anything you want to play on it in any way, shape, or form. Uh, it's been relegated to being a novelty instrument because uh, guys will buy very fancy ones and they don't play very well, these guys. They're poor musicians, but they're older guys and they have fun being around on it. So the banjo has been a very maligned instrument throughout the years. It only had a great period for about 11 to 12 at the outside, 15 years. In the 1920s up to about 32 or 34, the, the banjo was the, the instrument. It was in the very early jazz. It was in the platform of jazz. And that's when its heyday was. That was when it accompanied these jazz bands and did various things like that back in those days. After that, the guitar came into the bands and orchestra because the advent of the electronics to the instruments. So the banjo dropped out. Before that time, they used the banjo because it could be heard through the horn section. And the guitar couldn't be really heard through the horn section. So that's why it was in there in that period of time. And so, like I say, it only had about 11 to 12 to 15 years, maybe, of its heyday, of its glorying time. Uh, and from that on after that, it became a, a specialty instrument, a novelty instrument. Now, I also liked and played a lot the period where they used it in the golden age of Broadway, where they used it in these in these pit orchestras and things. I did the shows of uh, The Boyfriend and Hello, Dolly and Mame at the Winter Garden Theater. I did all those kind of shows playing banjo and guitar doubling banjo and guitar. So I like that period because they wrote for it as an interesting period in an orchestra. And here in New York, I've also done a lot of the orchestral things that were written because in the 1920s, it was written for uh, the, the Rhapsody in Blue with Paul Whiteman. Uh, I've done the 1924 jazz uh, concerts of uh, uh, George uh, Antile, where they considered the bad boy of jazz. There was a Carnegie Hall concerts of that. We recreated all that kind of stuff. So there was a period where they tried to use the banjo in the orchestra, in the full symphony orchestra. Samuel Barber, various other people tried to use it in the orchestra. It came out of that same period came the, the 1920s also period of Kurt Weill, where he used it in his Mahogany Opera and, and all his shows that came from over there. By the time he came to New York and got into the theater, it started falling out of the orchestra a bit until the period of the 50s and 60s when it came back into Broadway theater. When these shows I was talking about came back, Cabaret, I played that, all those kind of shows. So I, I enjoy... The jazz era period, I enjoy what the banjo can do just as an instrument by itself, and I love that Broadway period of what the, the banjo had for it, for those shows of Jerry Herman and those various people that, that did that style, brought that style of banjo into Broadway. Our interview on this episode is the legendary Eddie Davis. Mr. Davis, I wanted to know, as far as banjo players, who would you say are your greatest influences? 
like I say, the way I play the banjo is I kind of picked it up and I knew a bit about what they call music theory, the theory of music and the structure of chord harmonies and things. So I kind of just applied that, what I was learning about arranging orchestrations and things like that. I applied, the, applied that to the banjo. That's kind of the way I learned. But after I was listening to the banjo players and seeing what was going on, it was a 1959 late recording of Elmer Snowden, who had the original orchestra, uh, the Washingtonians of Duke Ellington. He uh, made a recording in 1959 called Harlem Banjo. He had Tommy uh, Bryant, Ray Bryant's great piano player's brother on bass, Tommy Bryant. He had Jimmy Crawford on, on drums. And they played these wonderful little songs from out of the 20s and 30s. And, and they just sat there and played them as, as musical songs. If for anybody that just wants to hear how the banjo sounds, just strummed, plucked along and strummed along, the Harlem Banjo by Elmer Snowden, an album that was on Riverside in 1959, was the one that really kind of turned my head around to what I liked. I liked that. Then I also was listening to a thing that was called Ike Robinson's Rhythm Aces. He was a banjo, tenor banjo player that came out of Chicago, and he, they had made recordings, and he had had on trumpet with him Jabbo Smith, this guy that was fiery like Louis Armstrong and, and on the opposing record label from Louis Armstrong. And the original recordings were called Ike Robinson's Rhythm Aces featuring Jabbo Smith. Now all those have been changed. Now all those are called Jabbo Smith's Rhythm Aces. But really they belong to the banjo player Ike Robinson back in those days. And he was a very hot single string player. Uh, if you listen to a tune called Jazz Battle, this on an album that I have out there and some of the things that I've done. That's the kind of thing that Ike Robinson did. I tried to not play what he did, but I tried to play in that style. Jubilee Stomp is on one recording and Jazz Battle and those kind of things. So those were the two major guys that really influenced me. There were a lot of other people but those were the two major guys. Jenny Condon was from Indiana. He played actually played plectrum, uh, guitar and banjo like Cynthia, Cynthia Sayer and Buddy Walker and various other people play. This is a different style. But he was from Indiana and he also played in the style of uh, chordal accompaniment that I like. But various players like that. But the two main ones would be, uh, well, there's actually three. The third main one, uh, Elmer Snowden was the first one, uh, Ike Robinson, the second one. And the third one was the fellow from New Orleans that played six-string banjo and guitar. And he played the six-string banjo. His name was Johnny St. Cyr. And he was the banjo player with Louis Armstrong's Hot Five and Hot Seven. He was the banjo player with Jelly Roll Morton's uh, uh, Red Hot Peppers. And that style of banjo is completely lost. John Gill, uh, who plays drums with us on the Woody Allen Band, also plays that style of seven-string banjo. He's a wonderful banjo player himself, and he basically plays the plectrum on six-string and all that stuff. He can play that style of six-string banjo that Johnny St. Cyr used to play. So I would say the three major ones would be Elmer Snowden, Ike Robinson, and Johnny St. Cyr were the three. And they were all, strangely enough, black banjo players that came out of the jazz era. I wanted to ask you... Uh... On a lot of your recordings, you had mentioned earlier that the banjo should be treated like any other instrument. You can play anything you like. And some of your compositions are in styles that are, are it's very interesting to hear banjo on, very pretty stuff. You have a song, a, a couple songs that you've composed, bossa nova, sambas, etc. So I was wondering, as far as songwriting, is there a certain style of music that you try to emulate with your own music? 
Well, uh, yes. Uh, I, I would say that uh, as far as a songwriter goes, I'm a very I'm a person who loves great flowing melodies and also loves a very uh, pretty harmonies. Uh, so that's where the the sambas and the bossa novas come in. I in the 1960s when I was going to music school in Chicago, uh, I uh, was composition major there. I, I heard. Uh, the, my first stuff with Stan Getz on saxophone and Charlie Bird on guitar, and then the next stuff that came with uh, Stan Getz on guitar, uh, on saxophone, and um, uh, Joao Gilberto uh, singing and playing, playing guitar and singing out of Brazil, uh, playing those tunes by Antonio Carlos Jobim, and that sort of thing. I heard that, and that style of musical composition was beautiful melodies with these very exotic, wonderful, warm harmonies. And that really took my heart. I really liked that. I wanted to go to Brazil instantly in the 60s, but I didn't have the money. I was in music school. I was draft age. And had I left school, I'd have been drafted by the Army and all that kind of stuff. And so um, basically, I didn't get the chance really now. Every time one of those people came around Chicago, I would jump in and catch that music and all that. So that style of of whatever, I do write a lot of that. Otherwise, I'm a classical... They didn't have jazz schools back then when I was going to school in the, in the 60s. And, uh, and they... Um, in the late 50s and 60s. So therefore, what I went to was a standard classical conservatory. So I do write a lot of classical music. I'm working on classical piano piece now that I've written a number of years ago with a piano player here in town. I've got a lot of string quartets. I've got a large orchestra piece that I'm working with here called the Alpha and the Omega and some stuff like that. So I have always written in the classical structure a bit also. I think I'm a bit tinged by harmonies in there also and whatever, but um, I've written all styles. I, I do then try to write in the style of, of uh, earlier jazz because I love that. So I've written a lot of little tunes like Hoagie Carmichael writes or like early Johnny Mercer writes or uh, a fellow by the name of Willard Robeson wrote Whistle Stop Music. He was from uh, Hannibal Mole, Missouri. Um, I do tend to like those uh, laid-back, easy, like I say, Hoagie Carmichael kind of composers. Now, that being said, I also come from Indiana, so I also love Cole Porter and that sort of thing. Jerry Herman, I love a lot, the Broadway composer. So I do a lot of tunes in that period of the, the 50s, 60s Broadway style that I was telling you, the, uh, tunes that would come from uh, Jerry Herman, for example, as I just mentioned, or the earlier stuff that would come from Cole Porter, uh, Rogers and Hart, uh, all that. So I tend to write pop stuff like that. I, I was told by my composition instructor years ago that it, writing is a muscle, he said. And he said, you must write every day like a person would go to work every day. So whether you feel like writing or not, do write something down. And make sure that you complete it. Don't just put a few ideas down. Write something complete, one or two or three things a day, uh, just because, and eventually when somebody like Woody asks me, Woody Allen asked me to, to write a piece for a film or something like that, I have that ability to do it instantly like that. I have, or I have something that I've had laid around for 20 years that I pull out I can use because I have that. So I have uh, literally thousands of pieces of music around here of different stuff of different styles and different things because, and he said, even to, if, you, if you're going to write something and you don't feel like writing something, then pick some style. 
pick a certain style of uh, classical music or, or pop song or old pop song or traditional or something of <laughs> Cuban music, something. Pick some style and write in that style so that you keep it at, at your fingertips. So I've always done that. I've got, like I say, thousands of stacks of music around the apartment here and all that kind of stuff uh, so that I could keep it there. I've always believed that to be true, that re- writing is a, a muscle. Now, a number of years ago, Woody talked me into also writing stories. So I do the same thing. I write little stories. I have final draft on my computer here, and I have Sibelius for my music, and I sit around and I write plays, too, and I write various things, because it's, it's something that I really enjoy, and something that uh, in the last 20 years or 30 years, I've enjoyed actually writing and doing that stuff more than I've enjoyed anything. Uh, doing stuff of my own is what I've really enjoyed. I even made a couple CDs of different stuff of shows that I've written and different stuff, things like that. So, um... I would say my writing is not in a... I I did for a while write some pop stuff uh, for Joe Namath and uh, cartoons and various things like that, so I can try to write in a pop style uh, more. I tried to write... I I can write also in style more like uh, Burt Bacharach, which is... uh, I can explain to you more that style because I've studied all those styles and things. But uh, I tend not to do that as much as I do just uh, songs of the classical... Uh, uh, music of the standards of, of America or, or in, a, in more in a classic or in the Bossa Nova style. And you just mentioned Woody Allen, who is a member of your band, the Eddie Davis New Orleans Jazz Band. How did you first meet Mr. Allen? Well, when I was going to school in Chicago, uh, about, uh, I'd been going to music school for a few years and, and, uh, had a jazz band in an area there called Rush Street, which was on the near north side of Chicago. Uh, it was a, a strip, a street that was about, oh, maybe uh, 15 blocks long. And on the side streets was Walton and those things where the Playboy Club was and the original Playboy Club and all that kind of stuff was there. And I was in a club called Bourbon Street. And about a block down the street from there was a one of the most famous nightclubs there ever was called Mr. Kelly's in Chicago. And Viber Streisand used to come in there, Jack Jones, Trenny Lopez, uh, everybody, you name it. All the comedians and Woody Allen used to come in there regularly. And they'd come in for maybe two or three weeks at a time, playing like uh, five nights a week. And so uh, since I had this, this jazz band while I was going to school there, that area, whole area was run by what they called the syndicate. Uh, the syndicate, or mafia, as some people I want to call it. Uh, syndicate was on the north side of Chicago there, was the Japanese and the Chinese. It, the Italians were on the south side. So all these clubs were just beautiful nightclubs. They tried to make every club they put up more beautiful than the last one. And so uh, uh, while I was playing there, why Woody's manager came down and said, would you mind if he came down after he finishes his show and play with your jazz band? And I said, of course not. Come on down. So he used to come down and sit in with us, and that would have been about 1963 uh, or so, and then he kept it up for a while he was, until he started making films. At that time, he was just a comedian because he'd stopped the, the writing for... Um, uh, for the television and all that. And it was kind of interim period where he was doing com- stand-up comedy. They call it stand-up now. Then it used to just be comedy. Uh, in between that, before he got into the films and all that. But he's always played the clarinet everywhere. So we struck up this friendship back then, and I've worked with him ever since from that period of time until today. 
When someone goes to see the band play or when they go to listen to one of your records, what is it that you hope the listener gets out of the experience? Well, first of all, they most forms today uh, are that people are not exposed to. Now, that's a crime because in this day of age, we've never had so much media out there for people to be exposed to different things. But it seems like every channel wants to be number one, and they all try to put the same thing on every channel, but trying to be number one rather than forgetting about all that and just having a diverse media going on. So the more channels we have on the television and the more media we get, the smaller the amount of different types and styles of entertainment and music get out to the public. So the first thing that always happens when they see Woody, of course he's a celebrity, they go see him, they first of all wonder what that strange music he is he's playing. So they have to be exposed to it. So the stuff that I do, whether it be classical or whether it be whatever, uh, general people have to come to it uh, rather than it being given to them because the masses of the media don't do those things. They have this very narrow thing where they build a celebrity, usually an 18-year-old celebrity or a very young celebrity, and they put that on the market and it's a built product rather than uh, something that has to do with their talent. When I came up, the whole thing, people regarded talent. That was meant a lot. I mean, if you had a, some kind of a talent, you were a great person. Today, nobody has a talent except the, the lawyers that they think they put it together. They think they have the talent. And, of course, then all the recording engineers think they have the talent. They always forget that the talent always really should come from the person that is responding as the first individual of that. But today, if you're a musician, it would be tough today to be a musician. Uh, uh, see, I'm, I'm 68 uh, now. So um, I can see this throughout the years that if you're a musician now, nobody cares about musicians. They want to take a musician, tape him, put him on some kind of a tape, and then they use that tape to take some young celebrity type person and make them into a mold. They have to look a certain way. Today, Ella Fitzgerald couldn't even get in the door. She's one of the great singers of all the time, because, but she couldn't even get in the door of, a, of an audition because she wouldn't look right. So that wouldn't happen. Louis Armstrong's couldn't happen today because you can't have instrumentalists who do things because that doesn't work today. Everything has to be a vocal. So the market has gotten so narrow that the kind of music that I want to write and I can play is a very underground type music. So it's uh, the main thing I enjoy is seeing the faces of people finding something new that's really quite old that they should be able to find easily and they can't. The listeners out there, they can find some some of this music that uh, is much neglected by our our media uh, on NewYorkJazzRecords.com. There's some of your records on there. There's a, a song I wanted to ask about in particular that you uh, you recorded called Calypso Joe. I was hoping you could tell us about that song. Uh, uh, in writing various different songs, uh, of, like I mentioned sambas and bossa novas, I, I also like all of what used to be popular in the 1930s and 40s in the motion pictures of all the different styles they brought in to the, the films and the rumbas and the mambas and all the different stuff that they, calypsos, and the different things of the styles of, of the Latin music that they brought in back in those days. Today, that once again, that's all been changed. Today, Latin music sounds like 
rock music. It's, it's all based on eight to the bar rhythm like ragtime was. And so everybody, everything sounds the same in the rhythm section and all that. And this, and this based on drums and all that. Now the tango never had drums in it and all that. So uh, it's all been all messed up as far as that goes also because now it's all funneled into one word salsa of some kind of thing or whatever uh, as far as the Latins go. But back in those days, there was all different kinds of rhythm styles and all that. So I've always enjoyed all that. And I kind of let a song designate what it is. And when I wrote, I've written a lot of different uh, calypsos and a lot of different stuff like that. Uh, and when I wrote that particular song, that's uh, uh, the two that opens up my website, uh, it, it was it was just it felt it just had the feel of a Cuban beat, uh, of the uh, uh, a calypso beat. So uh, uh, the drummer on the record date was Joe Ascioni. So he, we were going to use a little spot in it where he did a little drumming thing in it. So uh, I wrote some words to it called Calypso Joe for that, whatever. And so uh, I kind of tend to write, I, I started writing lyrics years ago also, uh, originally because it was a way to get the tunes out there, and I couldn't find the lyricist that I really worked with very well. And so then I tried to develop myself as a worthwhile lyricist after that, too. And sometimes it works. Sometimes it's like the music. It doesn't really get there. But on those kind of particular tunes, I kind of let the style of the song, the style of the melody, and all dictate what's going on. And it just happened that Joe Ascioni was a good percussionist on this record. So it came out to be Calypso Joe. Now, uh, you mentioned jazz, that New York Jazz Records. How that came about is a number of years ago, 30 years ago or so, I was involved with a, a guitar player uh, here in New York City uh, that it was an amateur kind of guitar player, but he was a millionaire. He he invented things. He invented the ball and band roll-on and the, the uh, pumps on the bottles of glass plus and all that kind of stuff. And he played very adequate rhythm guitar, and we had fun. And, and since he had money, we saw a lot of the older black musicians here in New York that were very old and they were going to pass away soon. So I said, hey, let's record some of them. And we even did audio uh, uh, interviews with them. I have a lot of audio interviews that someday you probably should put on your show. Uh, I have audio interviews of all these old guys talking about 1900 and all that when their music started for them and their jazz and all that kind of stuff. So we started out by recording those guys. That's how New York Jazz started. He eventually passed away and left the whole thing to me. And so I kind of did a lot of things that had to do with my music at that point. But originally the idea was to do the older musicians here in New York that were going to pass away. That's how that started. One of the records on uh, on New York Jazz Records, it's uh, an album you did with Connell Fawkes, and it's called Out of Woody Allen's New Orleans Jazz Band Comes Eddie Davis and Connell Fawkes Performing Selections from His Motion Pictures. I was hoping you could tell us about that. That's a very interesting concept. Since I've done tunes for Woody's films, since I've even been in some of the films, a million people always ask me to do some tunes for Woody's films because the style of tunes he picks is generally the style of stuff that I write, whether it's in the older jazz form or whether it's in the standard form or whatever. And so Woody have always been in a, con a connect there together with all that kind of stuff. So when we were going to Connell Fox and myself, the piano player with, he's a wonderful bass player also, but the, the piano player with the Woody Allen band now, when, when we decided to go to Barcelona two summers ago, when Woody Allen was going to do the film, Vicky Cristina Barcelona or right. something like that. Yeah, Vicky Cristina uh, Barcelona. When we decided to go over there and do that, Woody said, why don't you come over and play a club? And I knew of the this wonderful hotel, the Casa Fuster over there, and I knew of that 
beautiful room they had. And so I called them and said, look, I, we want to come over and play because Woody wants to drop in two or three times a week and play. Uh, I said, you can't advertise that Woody's going to drop in because he doesn't want to do that because he doesn't want to be put on the spot to be there any particular night. And they said, fine. And they did that. So we played two and a half months, two summers ago while he made the film over there. Now we're going to do something similar to that to this summer when he does a film wherever he does it, maybe Paris or wherever. Since all these people were asking about all that stuff, I said to, to Connell, I said, why don't you come over and we'll, between the two of us, we'll write a bunch of little arrangements of these different tunes that are in the Woody Allen films. We, so we took all the tunes of, that Woody had in all the films, all that. He gave us all the names of everything and all that. And we kind of picked out little tunes that we would do eight bars or ten bars of and go on to another tune and make a kind of a little mini concerto out of each film kind of a thing for the song. So that's the way we look at it. We look at it when we perform them, because we do perform all those things that same way. We look at them as kind of a little mini concerto of each film that's in there. So we took, I think, probably 14 or so films, maybe more, and, and we did these little mini concertos, and then I recorded them. We put them on, a, on an album, because uh, we were going to be there anyway, and it seems to be received quite well. Is there a member of the Eddie Davis New Orleans Jazz Band that you feel closer to? Uh, I feel close to Connell Falks because we do a lot of work together, just the two of us. Now, Connell is the latest guy that's in the, uh, the band. He came in about eight years ago or so. Cynthia Sayer was playing piano with us back in those days, so he actually started playing bass first. Now, Cynthia uh, is really a banjo player, and she always wanted wants to be traveling as a banjo, but originally she had played other instruments, and piano being one, and percussion, drums being another, and all that. So since I really couldn't get a piano player here in New York that played in the old style, they all played a more flowing, more full piano, I said to Cynthia, would you just kind of bang on the piano like you're playing a second banjo, and get that New Orleans-style piano, which before, when Lil Hard and Armstrong, Lewis's second wife, was playing, and those people back then, they did what they called spanking the piano. They just played chords on the piano and bounced it along, bass line to chord hand. Then when she was replaced by Earl Father Hines, he changed all that jazz. He brought in modern jazz, modern jazz piano, and he brought in this full fluid playing, which things would happen with just duets between he and Louis Armstrong at that time, and that sort of thing. And Louis changed, Louis Armstrong changed the style of trumpet playing, not that he was appreciated it. Uh, he didn't particularly like bebop and things that came after that, even though he loved Dizzy Gillespie and all that. The style of piano I wanted was that early style. So Cynthia could do that because she knew the piano. So she played piano with us for a number of years. And then Connell was on bass. And Cynthia kind of wanted to go back to, to being banjo and doing her other stuff. And, Con- and Connell was such a good piano player at the time. And all that, it kind of let us breathe another direction for a moment. So we switched Connell over to, to piano. Now when somebody in the band is missing or whatever, because sometimes Connell is gone, Cynthia plays piano. Sometimes uh, bass player is gone, uh, Greg Cohen. Connell will go over and play the bass, and Cynthia will come in and piano. So she's still in and out of the band quite regularly and all that. And uh, the trumpet player, Simon Wettenhall, has been with it all the time. Uh, John Gill was originally the original drummer on it. Now, he left two or three times and went other places, and now he's back. The original trombone player was Dan Barrett, who's on the West Coast now, wonderful trombone player. When he left after the first tour, Jerry Zygmunt, who's on now, came on the band. He fit the band just perfectly, and he came on. He lives upstate Connecticut, and all that, so he drives quite a ways to be part of the whole thing. But these guys love being part of it. So he's been with it for a long time. 
I say we had replaced John Gill with uh, Rob Garcia here in New York, which is a wonderful young drummer, and Pat Carmichael, another wonderful young drummer from here in New York on various different occasions, but John is back now. Greg Cohen was the original bass player. Greg, I met with Tom Waits when I used to travel with Tom Waits on the road and with Leon Redbone and with John Prine and various different people like that. Greg came from the West Coast. He's a little younger than I am or so, but I met him as a young kid. He and Tom Waits married sisters, and so uh, he stuck in and did a lot of arrangements for, for Tom Waits. So the, the nucleus has always been very strong musicians that understood the style that Woody wants to play, which is a fairly narrow Dixieland style, and the actual original word was jazz. That's where the word jazz came from. Originally, it was J-A-S-S, jazz. It is jazz originally now. They've used the word jazz for every other form. They shouldn't have. So when they got into modern and bebop and all that is jazz, they kind of brought up the word Dixieland for the earlier stuff. That's not the original term. That's a later term. And Dixieland is not really what we play. We play a, a, a more narrow style of early jazz than that. Well, I, as you can tell, I feel very close to all of them. Yeah. Because they all understand music well, like... Simon Wettenhall on trumpet is a wonderful bebop trumpet player and all that. But I, I want him not to do that. I want him to do the style of what's going on. Now, Jerry Zygmunt is pretty much in this style, period. Uh, uh, the others have all done various different things. The drummer John Gill played for years on the West Coast with a guy by the name of Turk Murphy who had a style of jazz out there. So I love them all. The one that I kind of in the closest to because I travel with him and because if you cut down to small groups, the piano is like an orchestra in itself, is Connell Fowkes. And we really kind of think a lot alike. For me, uh, he is the best piano player I have ever worked with. Connell and I can what they call fit together well. Uh, he and I can fit together. We think harmonies alike. We, we're not just stuck in one style. I'm doing a, a samba album now that I used him on, uh, using him on, and will be, and I, which is, contains half real Brazilians doing it, and Greg Cohen's producing it on the bass. He's one of those kind of guys that I can push a button, and he knows which direction I want him to go. And he's always in that period and in that style. He can do most anything I want him to do and push a button. So I would say that as of the last eight years since Connell Fowkes, or, or ten years since he's been in New York, he and I have become very close, sort of hooked at the hip, because we can do a lot of projects together, and he, he fills the bill on almost anything I want to do. And a charming guy at that. Yeah, perfect. Wonderful fellow. What is it that you like about music? At first, I liked it because it was fun and easy, and it was easy for me to do. I could understand it. I enjoyed what it did. Throughout time, as it changed and became a very narrow form of music in itself and various things, I've kind of not liked that. When you consider music, all forms of music, whatever, you can really take your personality and put it into music. And I've always liked that. Like I say, it's always been easy for me, so I've always taken the easy way to do different things. And luckily enough, I've fallen into a lot of things. I, there's just things I've missed along the way, like I uh, had the offer to go out after Louis Armstrong had uh, the song Hello, Dolly is a big hit. He didn't, in his original recording had a banjo on it, and uh, he didn't have a banjo in the All-Stars, well, some songs, All-Stars at the time. And Joe Glazer, I had worked for his manager, and Joe asked me to, to join the band, uh, the All-Stars, after that, when Hello Dolly was on. And I, I was hesitated for about six weeks because 
I was afraid if I got left the music school, which I had a student deferment on, back in those days there was a, a, a military draft, and I would be drafted. So I spoke with with uh, Joe Glazer, and I said, you know, if I go uh, out uh, from the music school, I'll lose a deferment, and I'll be out with Louie for six months or so, and then they'll draft me, and you won't like the idea you have to replace me. i got to be honest with you and all that. And he said, well... Talk to the syndicate back in Chicago and see if there's any strings they can pull. And I talked to those guys back there, and they said, well, it wouldn't be in our best advantage because we're enjoying having you play here in, in these clubs of ours in Chicago. So it kind of went along, and like I say, after about six weeks or eight weeks passed, whatever, I said to Joe, I just, I would, just, one of the great things in life I'd love to do is be out with Louis Armstrong at all, of course, but it, it, you know, it wouldn't be to anybody's advantage, and I would, uh, you'd actually lose me after a while, and he, he huffed a little bit, a little angry, and said, well, all right, he said, it's kind of, the time is, time, timing has kind of come and gone, and I don't think we'll send one out anyway. So there never was a banjo guitar player with Louis Armstrong's All-Stars, but he was that close, and I was the guy that was of choice at the time. And that means a lot to me. Things like that mean a lot to me. Music, like I say, has always given me something new. There's always something new around the next corner. There's always, even at this age, there's always something new I want to do. You know, I have 25, 30 projects here uh, in the apartment here in New York that I want to do, that I want to get done, that I, you know, all that. So there's always something that you can do out there, even if you're not in the popular form, which I don't want to be, uh, and I wouldn't be. If I had to be in the popular form, I would get out of music. That's the real truth. Uh, but I would enjoy that the kind of music and stuff that I like to be popular, uh, don't get me wrong, I would enjoy that, but, but I, well, the music I like is not run by lawyers, it's not run by executives, it's run by a talent, it's run by people who you hire or who you work for who have talent, and that is the music that I love, and that's what's always something new around the next corner, and that's why I love music. I have two final questions for you. My question to you is, what is your all-time favorite meal? Well, I come from Indiana. And I'm a real Hoosier, and in, in the Hoosier state of Indiana, we eat a lot of beef, we eat a lot of meat, we eat a lot of potatoes, we eat a lot of corn. That is what I love. I love just a nice big piece of meat and some uh, baked potato and some corn. The night we had New Year's Eve, we played uh, with Woody. We were in this big party with all these people, and they brought all this fancy, fancy food out. And it just left me really cold. What if, I would, if I could really go back to it, if my system would really let me go back, I would just have a nice, well-done cooked piece of meat, a potato, and some corn. My final question. This series has been heard by music fans from all over the world. I never dreamed that all this would have happened. But what would you like to say to those listening in? What would you like to say to all those people in the world that are joining us? Well, I'd like to say I'd like to say one thing right now. The whole idea of you getting involved in this has been amazing. Your questions that you've asked have been terrific questions. We often get asked questions all the time, people coming around, because Woody will send us out to answer questions rather than him doing it himself. He doesn't want to do that. So when we are approached by people of media of all forms, they usually ask just very inane questions, and they're usually always about Woody, never about the music that he likes to play and all that. So that's another reason he doesn't particularly like to do the interviews. So, But your your questions have been very, I've enjoyed it very much, to be honest. Uh, I didn't know what it would be like when we first talked and all that, and I've kind of hesitated doing the whole thing. 
But Woody, I've talked to Woody lately. He's enjoyed your, he enjoyed yourself a lot. And he said he really is glad that some people out there are trying to keep some of this music going and all that. He appreciated that for the idea that what you were doing and all that. So first of all, I want to say to your radio station that it is not usual what you're doing. And I really appreciate the idea of you doing it. And I like the idea that you're finding something in it, because that's what I said about the music. I want people out there to find something that the media is not giving them, that the world is not giving them. And so I hope that anybody that hears your station or listens, gives it a listen to, to the idea with an open mind as to... The way I see it, there's always something new around the corner in music. That's what I would like them to look at. There's always something new out there that I can hear and might enjoy. So that's kind of what I hope the world will do. Listen to all these various different forms, not just ours, but polkas, anything under the sun, marches, uh, uh, Susan marches have been lost, all that kind of stuff. You know, music of Leroy Anderson out of Connecticut, all that. All that stuff. I want people to find that, and I would hope that stations like yours and like could do the best they could to try to expose all that different stuff to these people who might really enjoy it uh, if they had a chance to hear it and get involved in it. Well, thank you very much. That really means a lot for you to say all that. And uh, it's been a pleasure speaking to you, and I hope to see you guys perform again sometime. All right. And if you ever do any kind of thing on... Uh, uh, bossa Novas or Sambas or anything like that, I'd love to get involved in that because that's a whole other world I do. I love that kind of stuff, all other kind of music, classical, any kind of thing. So now that I've done it, I, I know I hesitated at first, but now that I've done it and I've enjoyed your interview, if there's anything else you want to interview about, any other kind of thing or whatever, why don't hesitate to give me a call. The possibilities are endless. And say hello to that lovely lady that you had with you in the club uh, just before we went to Europe for our tour. Uh, actually, Bonnie said that she wanted me to say hello to you. All right. Very attractive <laughs> lady, and you're a l lucky man to be able to do what you're doing here. I'm enjoying what you're doing. Goodbye.